The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Isn't this time together great? Right? Yeah. Isn't it hard? Yeah. <laughs> I guess not doing it would also be very hard, though. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. So I'll be reading from Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. May God bless the reading of this word. And so hopefully we can make sense of that as we go along. I also want to let you know that it's possible by the time I get close to the end of my teaching tonight that we might be having some distractions in the building. Um, I was informed that the, the 1840s staff, um, as recently as just a few days ago, um, booked a salsa dance starting at 9 p.m. So after we're done and you feel so led, I guess you can go and join them dancing on the second floor. But um, there is a chance that they may start testing some music or something that could impede our focus. And so I'm just claiming in the power of Jesus that if he can resurrect Jesus from the dead, he can keep us focused through the salsas, um, the things that are coming our way. So just be aware of that. Um, before we get to, um, to pick up on a- in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to come back and just continue to say, I hope that you've been drinking this book in and just reading it and rereading it and letting it just marinate in your soul. Um, but Paul labored for nearly three years, approximately three years in Ephesus, and, and radically changed um, 
the whole context of the city. He attacked the spiritual powers. He attacked the financial powers. Um, but he wasn't doing it on his own. He was doing it through the power of the Spirit. And he did it through passionately pouring into incredible theology into disciples. So much so that they caused a disruption. The economy was different. The way people were treating people were different. So much about it was all different. And we find now, a few decades later, that Paul is writing to this church because the church has most likely gained some momentum. It has elders. It has a body. It's still growing in this capacity. But now he's chained up to a guard and he's writing back to them and wanting them to keep their focus. Because what is the problem that you and I have? What kind of problem do we have? A forgetting problem. So we might know good theology this week, but it's possible within a month we could forget what we were taught. We could forget what we we know. And he had poured his life in. Remember, how many times did it reference that he wept or cried while he was making these disciples? I mean, he was pouring his entire love and his entire being into them. And so yesterday we talked about this concept of how the Holy Spirit just amplifies power into our life. So if you weren't here, I used a sample of an example of a telescope where I can look at the stars at night and be like, wow, that's beautiful. But if I look into the, a powerful telescope, I can see more detail. And if I look at a stronger telescope or there's multiple lenses in the telescope, I can not only see the detail of the stars, I can zoom in closer and closer and closer to where you're seeing flares and all kinds of details that standing back, yeah, that's beautiful. But when you get amplified and there's power, so much more is revealed. And so what I'm, what I'm wanting us to grasp as a church, depending on our denominational background, where we've come from, what we've already been taught, is when we are sealed in our faith through Jesus Christ, when we claim our belief in Christ, we're sealed in him, the Holy Spirit comes to us, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit starts to do is reveal things to us, revelation. Like things we couldn't see, we're now seeing. And then not only is there revelation, he's giving wisdom so that the things that we're now seeing, we know how to interact with them, we know how to talk about it, we, we, we're, we know how to avoid bad circumstances, we know how to give our time to the right things. And then we also found that the Spirit in those moments can then just give us, I feel like, supernatural power to do incredible things. But not, like I said last night, not like Gandalf, a conjurer of cheap tricks. Um, we're talking about the power to change lives, to convict of sin, the power to take something that is broken in us and mend it back together again. He also can heal things. He can also do the miraculous. He, he could move Jesus through walls. So the things that the power of the Spirit could do through Christ, there's not saying that he can't do those things through us, which a lot of us lack that kind of faith. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Um, but one of the things that Paul was emphasizing in our text, whether it was in Acts 19 or in Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 at the beginning, is that God is rich in mercy. God has an, a lavish amount of grace on us. And the issue for me as a pastor, as an elder teacher in our church family, is that I have to help us to feel this lavish love of God. Um, because this world doesn't want us to feel the lavish love of God. I actually had an idea last night while we were waiting for people to clear the room and people had prayed over me and it was just a beautiful time of healing in my own life um, to think that one of these Sundays you're going to show up and we're going to have called one or ordered 
from one of those um, plastic jewelry stores that sends you plastic jewelry. And when you come to church, you're going to get like a dozen necklaces, a, do- a, a ring on every finger, and we're going to put all kinds of fancy fake jewelry on you because we can't afford to put real jewelry on you. But we're going to foreshadow this lavish love of God on you one Sunday when you walk in here, so just be prepared for it. Because some way we've got to taste and see in this world, the great blessings that we have coming. God's grace is rich beyond any way that we could talk about it. And this lavishness of God on us is spectacular. So let me step into the reading that Brandon did for us tonight in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. And I want to read to you an excerpt from a story that N.T. Wright was telling, because I feel like it's a great entry point into this. Listen to this. He's telling the story of a writer in England. He says, in the mid-1970s, a, a country vet in a small town in northern England suddenly became world famous. James Harriet, quite suddenly, had in his midlife written a book that, that sold in huge quantities around the world. Harriet, whose real name was Alfred Wright, lived in the town of Tursk in Yorkshire, England. We should start naming some of our communities and our buildings. Like, I live in the building Turks in the community of Yorkshire. I think it would be, it would sound so much better than some of the things we live in nowadays, but. Um, His delightful stories of people and animals in the local farms and villages brought pleasure to millions. But not least, his show, All Creatures Great and Small, was a television series based upon this work. In one of his books, Harriet tells how he planned to take his wife out for a small celebratory dinner at a restaurant some distance from their home. And on the way, due to some kind of mishap, his wallet had fallen out and he found himself at the end of the meal without a means to pay. However, to his complete astonishment, the waiter told him that the bill had already been paid. Unknown to Harriet, his senior partner had telephoned the restaurant and told them to charge the meal to him instead. It was his personal gift to the couple. I think there should be, like, if us entering the gates of heaven and seeing how blessed we are is like the climax I think a story like this gives us a hint. I think it starts to let us see and taste, and the Spirit gets involved in things like that. And we begin to taste a little bit about this lavish love. We get a little bit of a taste of how how gracious God is, even in the midst of our lives and the things that were going on. But one of the things I mentioned, I want to come back to this, because we go back to the first three verses of Ephesians 2, we begin to see that not too often, well, one of the problems in our humanity is we don't know we're on the wrong road. So we don't know that we need that lavish grace. So many people are thinking, my life is okay as it is. And when we, when we begin to think that way, we begin to have these thoughts that, well, God can enhance my ordinary life, but he can't change it to something better because it's actually pretty good. So I might need God to help me get around a corner or to help me work through a relational crisis or I might need God to help me here, but otherwise I'm really the person I want to be. We might not come confidently out in saying that because I've been reading a little bit recently trying to think about some things coming in the future for our church and been finding out that a lot of people really don't love themselves very well. Right, So it's interesting because we won't love ourselves well, but yet we also don't feel like God needs to do much with us. We just need him to tweak a few things along the way, which really speaks more to us wanting the desire of our heart 
versus us living a life saying, God, I'm surrendered to your will. And so when you begin to walk with what Paul was dealing with there, I think he's helping them shape their theology that God is bigger than just helping us navigate small problems. God doesn't just want us to pray at night, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? He, he, we we want to thank him for things. We want to say, God, I've spent my life today, but I need rest so I can spend my life again tomorrow. But I want it to be according to your will. God isn't there to just give gentle enhancements to us. He wants to radically give us power that Christ had that could resurrect him from the dead. So I I believe so often that our faith about what God wants to do in us is so small. Like, oh, God only wants me to learn to pray for people. He doesn't, we don't come into it saying, God, you want me to learn to pray with power where you give me authority. I mean, that's one of the things that's sealed in us in the Holy Spirit is that we get the authority that comes with that. Like the seal on us is God's seal. And so when we speak on God's behalf, it's God speaking. But we don't necessarily let that rest deep inside of us. You know, much of what Paul talks about in this letter to the church in Ephesus is about the gospel that is all about God's grace for us. It gives life to the dead. That's what God's grace does. And it's free. And it's undeserved. And that really speaks against this mentality that, oh, I really just need God to get me into heaven. Well, I need him to forgive me my few sins so I can get to heaven and just have a better life. But God's grace is so that we can, in our death, in our trespasses, we are dead in our sins, and he's come to bring us life. And so Paul's spending a whole lot of time on this. And there's different things that Paul has said. So I know that there's different levels of understanding in the room. People that have read all of the Bible, people that have not read any of the Bible, people that know Paul, some people that don't know Paul. Well, Paul many times has caused a lot of controversy in the church. People will argue about the words that he uses and all that. And if we don't try to wrap our minds around what he's saying and to whom he's saying it, many times we can walk away like, wow, is it grace? Is it faith? Is it justification? Is it righteousness? And all these really powerful words come out. But I believe in Ephesians chapter 2, the emphasis is on grace. The emphasis is on God lavishing his love on us when we didn't deserve it. Um, and then bringing us to life, and not just life, an abundant life, a powerful life, a life that is meant to bring his kingdom into the world until Christ returns. But this is um, one of those places in Scripture where it sounds a lot like what Paul was saying to the church in Rome or the church in Galatia, um, where he is starting to get into other aspects of theology, but then he immediately laser focuses back in because Paul, I believe, also writes with extreme precision. So it might seem like for one sentence and then the next sentence, the next sentence are on three different things, but those sentences were intended to be laser focused and to guide us into what he's talking about. But Paul is constantly fine-tuning the churches that he was investing in. Um, So I'm going to read another excerpt to you from something N.T. Wright wrote about this tension between some of the words that that Paul uses, like grace and justification. He says, Paul speaks in, in Romans, Galatians, and in Philippians of being justified by faith. Here, in verse 8 of Ephesians 2, he speaks of being saved by grace. Justification and salvation are not the same thing. So here, this is the part about justification I want us to understand. And this is me speaking now. This is coming back to N.T. Wright. 
Justification has to do with people belonging to God's family. It answers the question as to how they are marked out as the members of it, how we're marked by it. Salvation has to do with people being rescued from the fate that they otherwise would have incurred. It answers the question as to how the rescue has taken place and who is ultimately responsible for it. And when Paul speaks of justification, the thing which marks people out in their faith, when he speaks as, it's as of, of their salvation, the responsibility is God's. It comes about through grace. So the justification is a responsibility we carry. The grace is what God owns. Because he's telling well, why do you want to abuse God's grace? So he talks, this justification comes in. And we're going to talk more about this in the coming chapters, but I felt it was really important for us to mention here because we do nothing to earn our salvation. We can't be good enough. We can't be smart enough. But once we're in the family of God, there are things all throughout the New Testament that talk about we please God when we do these things. That's justification. When I sacrifice and I'm letting the fruits of God's Spirit manifest itself in me and through me, I'm doing something that's a part of this justification process that God has me in, this part of growth. He says, and he goes on to say, he speaks of salvation here, not justification. Since the topic of this chapter at this point is not how God's people in Christ are marked out, but how they are rescued from sin and death. So I want to make sure that when you start seeing words in this passage, like grace by faith, that we don't begin to, to, uh, to think differently. And if you're listening online, we're starting to get the early rumbles of some salsa, and so this could get really spicy here in just a minute. I've never, never preached a sermon to salsa music, um, but we'll see how it goes. But here we come at this point. When we're thinking about everything God has done to rescue us, we get to verse 10, and verse 10 has been an anchor verse for our church. If you've been through an essentials class, we talk about Ephesians 2.10 because the name of our church, Gallery Church, is birthed out of Ephesians 2.10. Because depending on your translation, it's going to say that we're his workmanship, we're his craftsmanship, we're his, hand, we're his handiwork. It's a lot of different ways that it has been translated. But here's the thing. The whole concept behind this grace and then how it's manifested in our life is almost like an artist with a piece of clay and he's sculpting something beautiful in us. But then that artist then sets that out in the world so that all the rest of creation can look at it, not to give glory to that that craftsmanship, but so that when they see that, they glorify the Father in heaven. So our lives, and why we call this the gallery church, is because we should be a mobile gallery of God's best work in the city so that when people draw close to us, they're like, wow, who is behind you? And you're like, it's the Father in heaven. Or when they draw close to us, it's like, wow, where is this peace coming from? Well, let me tell you, I'm in Christ. Right? It gives us an opportunity, not only for evangelism, but also just for some assurance and some comfort in our own spirit. But everything about this passage Paul is talking about, that God has been doing, God did something for us so that he could begin to let the Spirit do a revelation work in us. So we come in Christ and now the Spirit then takes over, starts revealing stuff in our life that needs to be taken out. Colossians 3 is a great passage for you to meditate on. Um, Things that need to come out and then things that we need to put on. And the Spirit leads that process. So that 
when we are out on display, people are like, wow, that is a beautiful work of God. How can I get to be a part of something so beautiful? And I do believe that this passage is particularly in this present sense, mostly focusing on our moral behavior, which is expected of us. I don't think it's just the private inner spiritual side of who we are. I think this is our public life that Paul is talking about. I think it's really easy for us to come in an environment like this and be like, yes, yes, Lord, I want to be with you. But as soon as we go to the second floor or we head outside of the building, it's very easy for us to then be a totally different person. And Paul's going to have some more words for that in just a little bit. But what, what, what happens in people's moral and spiritual lives if they don't grasp the fact that their entire life, never mind their salvation, is God's undeserved gift? Everything about our life is God's gift to us. So why do some people seem to embrace God powerfully and other people seem to say, well, yes, I'm saved, and, but, I don't, but we don't feel the lavish love of God? Why is it that some people, I mean, when you're around them, they're like, man, God has forgiven me. And then other people are like, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. And it made me think back to a story. And so I'm just going to read this from Luke and let, let what Jesus says be the teacher in this moment. Luke 7, um, it says this, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, again, this, in a Jewish community, the table would have been about this high. So Jesus would have been leaning on his left arm because this arm is considered unclean and eating with the right hand because this is the clean hand. This is what you do all the other stuff with, and this is what you eat with. This is what it's designed for. And so he'd been leaning on the left arm, so his feet are now extended away from the table. Do you guys get that imagery? All right. And so a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Did you catch that? She knew she was living a sinful life. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to weep, um, excuse me, began to weep his feet, excuse me, wipe his feet with her tears. Wet her, sorry, all right, I'm just, I am also majorly dehydrated in her. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and then kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisees had who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And remember, it says that he was thinking, he said to himself. So the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus heard his thoughts, which I think is phenomenal. And then he goes on, this, Jesus answered him, <laughs> Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. He then turned towards the woman and said to Simon, look, he's turned towards the woman, and then he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she went, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, who is this even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She entered through Christ, and she had peace. I hope you grasp the sum of that story is that many people that know that they've lived a bad life love Jesus more. It's many of us that don't really think that we're that bad, don't really understand the full grace of how God has loved and forgiven us. So now Paul transitions. He's kind of made this case in his letter about the grace, the lavish love of God, and kind of just like, boom, let's just talk about the fact that you think you're going the wrong way, now you're going the right way. And he then begins to talk about the corporate body, He's starting to talk about the fact that, look, we are lavish with God's grace, but we're not an individually saved person. We're saved into something. So I I thought one of the best, I I wanted to transition in a way that would kind of help us understand what I think Paul is doing, but the illustration breaks down at the end, and so I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the illustration starts out really well. Um, When I was in middle school for two years, about a little over two years, I lived on the Potomac River. I lived in a neighborhood in Akakeek, Maryland, which was just below the Woodrow Wilson Bridge south of D.C., and we lived like like around the bend from a boat ramp. So we were constantly, as a kid, I was going there fishing with my friends, I, friends that had canoes. We'd go on that. My dad had a boat. We'd go out on that, but was constantly in and around the Potomac River, and I loved living on the river. I loved living near water. I, I, I love going to our Baltimore Harbor. I think it's life-giving when I get, when I get around water. But, it, but when I was thinking about this passage in Ephesians 2, it made me think about the Potomac River. Because the Potomac River is really like ranked like the 21st river in the United States, which in regards to size and beauty and all that, but I think it's pretty majestic. It's about 405 miles long. And it carries the water all the way from the mountains in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, all the way through Maryland and Virginia, all the way to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, But I wish that you could see this. And if we had taken time to make slides, I could show you. But there's two little snapshot or four snapshot pictures that I took here with over 120 items listed. Do you know what 120 items would be a part of a a conversation about the Potomac River? They're all creeks and streams that flow into it. It's one huge system of a multiplicity of small creeks and streams. So over 120 creeks and streams join together to make the Potomac River. But when they join into the Potomac River, they don't become the broad-run Potomac River. They don't become the um, Tawan Potomac River. They don't become the Roanoke River, Potomac River. They become the Potomac River. So if you and I are paddling down the Broad Run Creek and we end up out in the Potomac River, we're no longer paddling in Broad Run Creek. We're paddling now in the waters of the Potomac the particular thing that I think Paul is wanting to emphasize now in this transition, because he's all gone, all his theology up to this point has been for you and I to believe the lavish love of God and what that means through Father, Son, Spirit, 
how we think we're right, but we're really not. We're really dead. We're really alive now because of our belief. Now saying that what does that look like when we all come together? Because God's purpose isn't just for us to have awareness of his grace. God has a bigger plan. And that bigger plan has a continuation to what we now look like together. What does it look like when we come together? And so he's starting to map out a little bit more about what this whole theology of what the church really is. And so when you begin to see this, I believe that there is, a, uh, is something special. But the, uh, but the irony is, is that in Paul's illustration, it's actually two massive rivers coming together to form a small stream. Because the two rivers that Paul's talking about is the Gentiles. Let's just list some Gentiles in the first century. The Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire. You know, there was an empire that was already forming in East Asia. There was other parts of the Mesopotamia, Persia. There was the Egyptians all the way down into North Africa. So there were all of these massive groups of people that were just now starting to hear about the gospel. And so you had this massive river of Gentiles that was now flowing into a small stream. But yet Israel is the other river, and it's a much smaller river. So you have this massive river now flowing, but what Paul is saying is, is that the, the, the massive river is maintaining the Israeli identity. That's why I believe Paul says in this passage of Scripture that the prophets are one of the cornerstones. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because I want that to make sense for us. But the joy of the river is that everybody who gets in it now has a reason for hope. Because God. And when, when we begin to understand, like in verse 12, this early church was really referred to as the atheists, which I think is very ironic the word here that's in verse 12 is actually translated atheist in the Greek. And so Jews in that century were called atheists because they didn't have statues, they didn't have all these other ceremonies and things like that. And so the pagan world called Jewish people atheists. And now the Christians are now being adopted into that in the first century. They're now atheists along with the Jewish people. But it's ironic because the Gentiles called them that But Paul is now making a very bold statement, as Paul always did, that the same grounds as Jewish writers of that same period and earlier, that the pagan gods were actually the non-gods. This was a first-time statement. This was the first time people were actually hearing that their faith was atheistic. Their faith was for non-gods. Because like, they thought their gods were real. Now, do you see why Paul's in prison? I mean, it, it, it wouldn't go very far before you go start speaking to like, the god of money that people really start to shun you right, in America right now. Like, you speak against money, people have a lot of responses. And it's not just about stewardship, it's about quantity, it's about everything. And you start speaking boldly. Look at some of the people on social media that have entrenched themselves in just an assault on money, and then you realize what might be a spirit of America, right, that we're really waging war against. 
Um, but they were learning to hear from Paul that all these other gods were non-gods, and they think they're worshiping something, but they're worshiping something that doesn't exist. So he's not just telling them that their God is smaller than our God. He's telling them to their face that their God doesn't exist. But at the same time, he seems to be just as empathetic to those who define themselves um, uh, by being male members of the Jewish community. I mean, again, Jewish people, um, um, a great people of faith. But in the first century, a lot of men walked around proud because they were the circumcised ones. And they felt like they had a better right, a bigger portion of God's favor and blessing, even more so than the women because they couldn't be circumcised. And so this is his little joke about the uncircumcised and those of the circumcision because those belonging to the Messiah are new people of God, spiritually, physically, the whole deal. And so Paul's telling, because remember, his audience is Gentiles and Jews. So he's not going to tell the, the Gentile people, oh, your gods are non-gods, and just tell the Jews, well, everything you've got is fine. He's working a refining fire in the Jewish people, too, by telling them, no, you can't make these Gentiles get circumcised because that circumcision was a part of the law that got all screwed up. And you guys didn't stay to the intent of God's heart. There's so much of the New Testament in Paul's writings that's just trying to reprogram the thinking of Jewish people. Because what God had set out and intended for them as a nation to be a blessing to all the other nations, if you read the words to Moses when he was given the commandments and given the commission to care for the nation of Israel and bring them out of Egypt, it was that he wanted to bless a nation, make them holy, dwell with them so that all the other nations of the world would come to them to receive the same blessing. But somehow in Israel's history, they got away from that and they just wanted to be the only blessed ones. And when they would invite people in, they'd make it difficult and burdensome for them. So God all along has wanted the other nations to be included. But now in Christ, or as Paul says, but now we have access. And so when I said earlier about the stream, there is a breakdown in this illustration. It isn't just that one stream is merged without a trace into the other. Nor is it just that the new river is simply a combination of two. It's actually a combination of many. But from this point on, the whole river takes on new and different character every time a new stream comes in. So really, for me, it's almost like going reverse and going back to where the Potomac dumps into the Chesapeake and you begin to see what's called brackish waters, where salt gets mixed in, the different fish are there. And, and this is the beauty of the church. As we mature in our cultural and ethnic and economic diversity, our water changes. It's not the same. And that's a good thing in God's kingdom. There needs to be a change. So there are people that will come and sit in church and be like, I like my music only one way. But there's probably a hundred people in our church that like it a different way. But culturally, this is what I've always experienced. And then, well, culturally, this is what I've experienced. Well, culturally, this is what I've experienced. And, and then, you actually know, there's a fight going on in the church about just the way we worship God. And Paul is writing a letter to them, and he's helping them navigate this by saying, we are one, and we bring all these cultures together through the power of the Holy Spirit because we're in Christ, and we've got to keep the fact that we're in Christ and continue to allow the beauty of what God is doing in the world present to him a beautiful bride upon his return. 
And that bride is a multi-ethnic bride. That bride isn't just one race, one nation, one ethnic group, one class of citizens. It is everything. Paul now shows in this passage that this coming together of Jews and Gentiles into one family is achieved through the cross of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It has brought brought the pagans close in. People that were far from God, verse 13, are now brought in close. He has torn down all the barriers. Anything that would have stood between families, two families, which is now we know as multiple different nations, families from all over the place, anything that would have stood between them, verse 14, he's abolished those. The Jewish law, the Torah, not, not the sense that, that, like I said a moment ago, he's not saying that they were all bad, we gotta, because we've got to understand that, but, but they had made mistakes with it. And he's rebuilding them in verse 15. The hostility that had existed between the two groups that ultimately put Jesus on the cross in verse 16. There's been so much hostility. But at this point, as we saw in verse 15 when Brandon read it to us, there was created a new humanity. And I love the way Brandon even paused on that. Today's church may no longer face the questions about the integration of Jews and Gentiles, but we are still facing the questions of different types of integration. But we face quite urgently the the same question which Paul would have insisted on as a major priority in our life. If our churches are still divided along racial and culture lines, then we're in real trouble. We can't say that the gospel is for everybody and not be willing to let them in. One of the greatest worldwide problems of our time has been the plight of the refugees and the the asylum seekers right now. It's easy for many of us to live in our city and not really pay attention to the millions of people that are being displaced from their homes. Millions of people that are being sent away. Millions of people that actually go into a neighboring nation wearing the only clothes they have now. What they are standing in is all they have. And many refugees in many of these countries arrive often very overwhelmed. They have no resources. Their patience has been strained. They're under all kinds of emotional distress. And many times they walk into countries where there's no sympathetic feelings towards them. Refugees want above all what I believe and what I've heard um, through even the work that um, one of our locals, Jenny Yang, does through World Help, is that refugees above all want to return to their original homes. But most of them, that's an impossibility. So what they're wanting is accepted into a new community. They're wanting to rebuild their lives and their families in a place where they feel like they still have family. I feel like this is one of the best times in the world for the church to be beautiful. There are people that need to know that they can rebuild their lives in this church. They can find family. They can find resources. They can find encouragement. They can find life. One of the things that I've learned, too, through reading and studying this and the excitement you see is when a refugee finds asylum or they are able to to come to a country like America, one of the proudest days in their life is when they actually obtain a U.S. passport. They are now granted full citizenship. I have not had to go through that experience, so I'm telling you something that I haven't walked through myself, but some of you in here know what it feels like 
to be given citizenship. In a place where you can now say, I belong and I have family, I have roots, I can grow. I can now lead my family to be a blessing to other people. And I believe this is what Paul is saying at the end of Ephesians 2. We have been granted a citizenship, but we were exiles. We were refugees. We were outside and nobody wanted us. And, and the church is for that. The church is for people. Like, if it matches our spiritual condition, why can it not match the spiritual and the physical needs of other people around the world? I believe that this is the position that Paul's declaring in which the Gentile Christians now find themselves. Once foreigners, once strangers in relation to Israel, they're now finding a home in Israel. And I want us to keep coming back to this because it's really important. Because I know if we surveyed the majority of our church tomorrow morning, most people would not give credit to the root of their faith to being Israel or Jewish. They would mostly go back to just the cross. And they don't see that. And so one of the things I'm most excited about is starting on February the 4th, we're going to start a series leading up to Easter that is called, Why Did He Have to Die? And we're going to look at the passage found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Listen to this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul also goes on in several other places saying that we're grafted in. And so there is a important work that Paul is getting ready to do, and I want to help you understand this just a little bit more, because as he's saying to them this citizenship is going to give peace, not just to us, but to other people. And I, I, I capitalize this like five fonts larger than it, peace should be emphatic right here. There are people that will come into Christ that for the first time in their life will have access to peace. But what the gospel is announcing in our churches today, I don't know if that's necessarily what a lot of people are hearing, but I believe that's what the Spirit wants to do. And so how does all this work according to Paul? I believe Paul is saying that, look, we're, we, as he's closing this thought and getting ready to transition us into another thought, he's, he's coming back to the temple in Jerusalem that people had pilgrims to. And they all thought that it was the place where God dwelled. And so Paul is breaking down that theology of saying, yes, everything about God's dwelling and being inhabiting with people and the power of God has always, always been true. But there's been a misconception about buildings. The temple is not the dwelling place of God, because according to Ephesians 1, who, where does God now dwell in the Holy of Holies? It's us. And as the case he's now making is, is that temple and that dwelling place should expand so it's not, it's not just me, it is us. And we make a great holy of holies. And he's saying to them, and also to a Gentile world that's used to temples of all kinds, that those are empty. There's nothing for those. Now there's a, always a purpose in gathering in a building, but that is not the church. And he's laying a foundation for that. And what he's saying to them is that our Christian foundation, the cornerstone of it is Jesus. So what does that mean? And this is how I interpret this. And this is how you'll see me teach the scriptures. We're going to spend time like we have in the New Testament learning about Jesus because he's the cornerstone and then the prophets and the apostles. And I think that's really important that we understand that the prophets are representing whom? Jewish roots. 
the apostles are representing the new work that God has been doing in the church since the ascension. And so what he's saying to them is, is that if you want to make sure that the foundation is set properly, we start with Jesus and then we look at the prophets. We start with Jesus, we look at the apostles. We start with Jesus, we begin to look at everything that has already been fulfilled in writing in our scriptures and then in our prophecies towards one another, new things that God's doing. We start with Jesus because I wouldn't want my wife to come up to me and give me a prophetic word if it had nothing to do with Jesus. And so Paul is saying to this early church that as God is taking all these creeks and streams and turning it into one mighty rushing river, he's saying that there is a cornerstone to this river that's Jesus. There is a corner. There are other beautiful stones that are prophets and apostles. And then he starts talking about other stones that start to be put in. But then it becomes one of those eclectic buildings where all the stones aren't the same. And some of those buildings are the most beautiful buildings you'll see, but it takes a craftsman to put them together. Like when we were in Guatemala, we put that building together in three days because the blocks were all the same. There was no wondering how to shape them, where to put them. There were a few blocks that they cut with machetes, which was fascinating, by the way, that that cut off edges so they could form the roof line. But every other block in that building is exactly the same. That is not a picture of the church. The, the, the church has rocks of all different shapes and sizes that are be forming together that the Holy Spirit is working in and around to form a beautiful and majestic presence for his people. Together and only together, I believe, can we form a community that God delights to reside in. I, I, I honestly, I, I do struggle with churches that are what I would call hom- um, homogenous, where they're just one people. Now, there are certain parts of our country where it's hard to find people that are different. And so we have to be culturally sensitive in how we tell people, oh, your church isn't good because you don't have other people there. But if there are other people in your community, then the church is a place for them to gather. And so we've got to figure out a way to continue to carry this good news to others by saying to them that the light of the Lord is filled when, they're, when, the, when the church is built with multiple stones. So here's two questions that I'd like to bring to our closing tonight. And I mentioned it just a moment ago, one of them. Do we, Gentile Christians today, think of ourselves being grafted into the Jewish community? Um, I don't think that's the case. But part of our reason for walking through the Old Testament leading up to Easter is when we begin to see the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ, it's like the Holy Spirit adds another powerful lens to our perspective. The revelation of God gets more and more majestic, more and more awe and wondering when we can go back and look at the Old Testament scriptures, when many of them are very confusing and hard to read, thankful for Psalms like Psalms 139 that we can really find ourselves swimming in, but other passages were like, whoa, that's too much. Let me find something else. But yet, there's so much there for us. So, again, 1 Corinthians 15:3. For what I've received, I passed on to you as in first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the scriptures that Paul had during that day 
wasn't the Gospels, it wasn't the early church letters, and it wasn't Revelations, it wasn't any of those. They only had the Old Testament scriptures. So, the, the next question or thought for us is what other racial or cultural differences must we overcome today if the beautiful temple that Paul has in mind is built in the way that will honor God, the one God of all the world? What racial and cultural differences must we overcome? That's, that's a personal question and a corporate question. Because there's some of us that we're doing pretty well in looking at people as equal, and others of us, we struggle. We, we might think um, 99% of the people in the world are equal to us, but there's always that 1% of people we don't feel equal to. And then there's also others of us that we don't think anybody's equal to us. So we're, we're an eclectic bunch of thought in how we look at people. But if we're going to be in Christ, walking in the fullness of his power, we can't see anybody that shouldn't be included. Look at Paul. Again, opening letter. I'm an apostle because God wanted me to be. He didn't go on to say, oh, I was a murderer and I killed half your families, but um, I'm, I'm now standing in front of you, grace. And because of that peace, because of God our Father. And so who is the one person or the ten people or the ethnic group or the economic group that you have a sense of I feel better than you? That's probably the place that's going to radically change the power of our church. So, Father, as we come to an end of Ephesians 2 and we prepare ourselves for tomorrow in Ephesians 3, Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that we would let all the streams come in and we would realize that we're taking on this lavish love of God that's been going on since the garden. And, um, Lord, that we would see how you've always wanted everybody to be included. And so, Lord, I thank you for the work of Christ that just broke it down for us, made it possible because, Father, it was all you. And because of that, uh, we just stand in awe and we want to become more and more aware of that awe, almost like the woman in Luke 7, Father. We want to have weeping associated with our salvation. We've been forgiven things that we can't even fathom. And Father, we confess to you, we're sorry that we don't see our sin. But Father, we want to see, we want to be able to say, Lord, dwell in power in us. Because Father, we want other people to be persuaded to be a part of this, Lord. And so God, would you let your spirit work in us tonight? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.